I'm all for trying to keep the teams as informed as possible at all times of the context of the work that they're doing. Because I think if you don't have the context for the work that you're doing, it's very hard to be motivated. Having diversity across all the spectrum in the room means you get the broadest possible worldview inputting to your strategy or problem solving, and that's inevitably going to give you great results. Everything that you learn that's really important, you learn when you fail. There are very few things that you learn from the things that are just successful or that come easily. As soon as someone says, that can't be done, that's like an invitation. It's like, right, let's have a look at what can't be done. That sounds like something that's quite interesting. No great things are achieved by being realistic. This is CRNet TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Charlotte Light, CIO of Channel 4. Good morning. Good morning, Charlotte. Um, Charlotte has a bachelor's degree in environmental science and archaeology and a master in applied marine science. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And for the first 10 years of her career, she was a consultant at uh, IBM, at Bupa, and then uh, she became IT director for more than four years at Specsavers. Uh, and now she's the CIO at Channel 4 for almost four years. And of course, we all know uh, Channel 4 as the British publicly owned, commercially funded uh, service broadcaster that works in television, film and digital media. Yep, that's right. So I'm very pleased to uh, be here uh, with you, uh, Charlotte, today. And the first thing I would like to talk about is the, the, the program that you did, the transformation program of your digital TV platform. Can we talk about that? Yes, so um, I arrived at Channel 4, as you say, four years ago, and uh, TV is a new industry for me, so there was quite a lot of, of new technology and new business ideas to get my head around. But yeah. one of the things that's clearly critical as a media company at the moment is our digital platform, so that's yeah. all four, uh, especially with some of the larger digital companies moving into the content and digital content space. And uh, we already had a 14-year-old uh, platform or set of platforms on our .com, iOS, Android and big screen device uh, applications. Uh, but the delivery model was uh, perhaps had evolved over time. Um, and as part of our digital future, we were really focused on how can we grow and scale the technical delivery of the platform mm -hmm. in order to support our business growth and our strategic objectives around digital. And so one of the things I looked at was what's the supplier mix? What's the internal team construct? What's the methodology that we're using? Um, and it, we got to an interesting point where the chief executive at the time uh, asked if, if we were to get additional funding, how quickly and how readily could we spend it? And it, it was clear to me that our model would not scale. Okay. So I took a look at that in terms of figuring out what we needed to do and went to market to find an additional, uh, a, a potentially a new supplier model where we could consolidate and, and use suppliers to provide us with some guidance about our methodology and deliver us some best practice. Uh, potentially use nearshore model for the economies of scale that that would offer us. And, uh, and so we went through that process over 18 months of consolidation, new supplier selection, process transformation. Yep. And over the last 18 months, that's then manifest in the results that we were looking for. So uh, we've seen a 27% increase in productivity. Mm -hmm. We've seen a 29% reduction in cost per feature point and a 6% reduction in day rate costs. 
which has been great, but the, the, the cost, cost aspect is important. But we're also, of course, looking for improved productivity mm -hmm. and the ability to scale. And at one point last year, when we were looking at delivering an SFOD platform, a new iOS app, did mm -hmm. some work with Google Home, we scaled to 60% of our base team size. And now we've scaled back down a little bit while we're addressing some yeah. uh, other requirements. So, so both in terms of managing the cost, increasing velocity, and having the scalability, that, that's been a successful transformation of our, our mode of delivery. Because I can imagine that's quite a challenge. I mean, you have, to, uh, you have to support all these different platforms that all have the different ways of working. Um, and I mean, Channel 4 is, is a big company, but it's not a super big company compared sure. to the other uh, content providers and broadcasters and so on. So you have to do a lot with, a, with typically a smaller budget, I can imagine, than, than the bigger players. So you have to be very creative in, in coming to a good solution. Yeah, I mean, you need to, we need to get more bang for our buck, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and the difficulty is trying to balance getting a, a good cost-effective relationship with the supplier mm -hmm. while having a supplier with enough breadth of experience and scale to be able to support us in what we're trying to achieve. And who, who did you go? Who, who are you working we're with? We're working uh, with Accenture Digital uh -huh. primarily for our IELTS and our .com and our central services work. Mm -hmm. And then we work with uh, two specialist suppliers, so Exedo and Novoda, Exedo on big screen devices and Novoda for Android. Mm -hmm. um, we've had pre-existing relationships with them for some time. Uh, we also use Pixel for some of our uh, service work and our CI/CD work. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's a, a blend of suppliers, but I think bringing in Accenture Digital uh, was a conscious decision because of their expertise. They've worked with a lot of um, different TV companies on their uh, on-demand platforms and their, their digital applications. And they've helped us not only with the delivery, but also transforming our methodology so that we're doing we're moving towards fully scaled agile in terms of our delivery model. Mm -hmm. We do PI planning now on a quarterly basis, which gives us a better view ahead. And that's great for my internal team because yeah. it provides an upskilling um, and allows us to sort of develop our own capabilities so mm -hmm. that we have a strong in-house team and then we're complemented with the suppliers that we're working with. So with the suppliers, it allows you to, to uh, basically scale quickly without needing to hire and also get the expertise in-house of, of the different platforms that need to be developed. Yeah, it's a balance that you need to strike between having the strength of knowledge and understanding of your platform and, and what features you want to focus on and what your priorities are mm -hmm. with the scale in the build and test. But, but I think more than that, we look to our suppliers to provide us with strategic design guidance yeah. and help challenge us in terms of our thinking. You want a relationship with a supplier that's active, not passive, mm -hmm. uh, in any aspect of your technology yeah. estate. And I think suppliers, I, I kind of look more to suppliers now to step up a little bit in terms of not just telling me what I need to be doing, because they'll often come and say, this is what you need to be doing. Well, I know that, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I need to find a way to do that while I'm running the operation. Yeah. So, so the supplier not only needs to sort of have the strategic guidance and be able to execute, but also help you through the how. doing it while you're yeah. running. Um, and, and I think increasingly, not just in the digital space, but across all of our technology areas, trying to <coughs> introduce the scale of change whilst uh, running what is a, a sort of big and complex technology estate. That's, that's one of the things that's, that's quite difficult. Okay. So 
you basically also you did a serious transformation of your supplier and how the way that you manage them. How, how do you work with your suppliers differently now than before? Uh, I, th I think it's more of a, we have higher expectations, I would say, mm -hmm. and we have a, a tighter SLA construct. So we have a quarterly review where we look at the SLAs and we look at mm -hmm. performance uh, in a more active way. I think often uh, across my whole career, I've had relationships with suppliers where you set up the SLAs, you put the framework in place, and then once you get into run mode, it all seems to fall a little by the wayside or the reviews become a little bit informal. Uh, if we've kind of gone the other way here, so we're formalizing the reviews on a monthly basis. And, and now, not only with Accenture as a core supplier, but with our other suppliers, we have reviews on a monthly basis to look at what's working, what's not working, and then have that be a two-way dialogue. Uh, I think they, the, there used to be more of a model in technology where the client would ask the supplier and the supplier would provide. And that's, yeah. it was a very kind of two-dimensional relationship. Mm -hmm. um, th there's so much to do now when you're delivering technology change that you need a far less passive relationship. And is that because you're using much more agile methods and, and, and so on? Is the, is the agile method, does it need a different supplier model as well or a supplier relationship? I think it requires a lot more interaction on a far more frequent basis. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're not handing something over and, come back in six and months, then yeah. they come back. You're having a dialogue on a, on a weekly basis. But I think you're also looking for, you know, you want to be an account your suppliers want to work. Yeah. on, you want their staff to want to work with you, so you need to provide interesting work in an environment that is somewhere people want to work, and that way their best staff will want to come and work with you and work for you, and you'll get loyalty from supplier staff when they're working on your account, and I think that it's a careful line to manage to make sure you, you retain the degrees of separation that you need, that yeah. it's, it's a, a a formal commercial relationship while creating the links and the on-the-ground working experience that means people feel fully engaged and yeah. not like they're two separate teams and not like there's that blame game happening which can happen. But in a media company I can imagine, I mean it's a fun environment, no? A lot of things are changing and, and, and so on. So It is fun and it, it's, a, it's a great company, it has a great ethos and obviously it's creative. From a tech perspective, that can be a little bit challenging because, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of technology is about pinning stuff down and, and putting boundaries and parameters and controls in place. And so that can often not sit comfortably within a really creative environment. So from a technical delivery perspective, that can cause frustrations for suppliers or, or for staff when they're trying to nail something down and get it done. But in the main, um, the, the environment means there's really interesting work to do yeah. um, and the, the, the culture sort of supports getting that done. Yeah. And so how do you make sure you have enough diversity in, in, in your IT team? Uh, well, I mean, we work, uh, I work with the Tech Talent Charter and Tech She Can. Uh, the main, if I look at the statistics in my team, you know, the main issue that I have as, as you know, many companies have is that on gender diversity, there yeah. are are fewer women than there are men. Um, and, and so it's really working with third parties who are focused on shifting the dial there that, um, th that is important. And so what's the percentage of female IT people that you have in, 
I think I think of the latest stats we're at 26 27 percent that's not bad. which is good yeah um, you have a target that you want which to get is good against the market I mean the company target is is close to sort of 50 50 okay. um, you know across the company for me it's about creating the environment where uh, where there's the opportunity um, where there's a sort of um, where you have an, inc a, an inclusive feel mm -hmm. about the office, where there are the, the roles that are available are marketed and put out there in a way which have the broadest possible appeals. We've, yep. we did, we've done work like other companies have done around job descriptions and making sure that they're, they're not, they don't close down applications from women, which is often a, a challenge. We've also done workshops internally looking at unconscious bias which is often an issue in creating a culture that doesn't necessarily feel inclusive for women. So we've done some work around that. And we have an internal working group um, who look at, on an annual basis, what are the things that we can do. Um, and just simple things like uh, there's a Women of Silicon Roundabout. It's a huge event mm -hmm. in uh, London every year. And every year now, a number of women from the department go to the conference. And it's a, it's a very empowering conference it's both very technical at one end but also about you know how to build confidence and and plan your career at the other end of the spectrum uh, and, and one of my team members who went last year went this year as a speaker okay. and was mo so motivated by it that this year she went as a speaker so I think it's about creating the opportunities for your staff mm -hmm. and making sure you're looking at the environment and understanding what the constraints are yeah and balancing those two things. I can imagine that you've worked in environments where there were less women, uh, sure. less than. Do you see a difference in, 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 in culture and the way of work? What's the main difference if there's like five or 10% women or is there, if there's 25% in IT? I, I think it, it's obviously a very individual thing. When I, mm -hmm. Certainly when I was younger in my career, there were less women yeah. um, and I was less experienced, yeah. uh, I think. I think confidence is a big issue for, mm -hmm. for women. So whether or not it's the environment or it's a facet of the environment not being as open for, for women because they potentially lack the confidence yeah. to speak as freely or speak out or put themselves out there. Uh, there I, I can definitely identify with that. Yeah. There were times when I was earlier in my career where I'd, I'd be thinking something and I'd be thinking, this is an important thing. I should probably say this. <laughs> and then I wouldn't say it. And then someone else would say it. I'd be like, I should have said it, right? Yeah. It was a smart thing to say, but I sat on it because I wasn't sure. Yeah. And, and I'm in a room full of people who, who I don't necessarily feel as, as engaged with. Yeah. I also don't like talking about football. <laughs> We've sat through That's many, the first 10 to 15 <laughs> minutes of a meeting. It's all about football it's, or fantasy football, even worse. <laughs> like it's not even real football, it's fantasy football. I mean, my husband's South African, he's into rugby. So now I know enough about rugby, I can hold oh, my okay. own and actually be quite interested. You so that, that would be your tip for women IT leaders? Make sure you know enough about rugby or football. Well, I don't think that's the answer, right? <laughs> I, I think, but I think you have to call it out. So I'll quite happily now say, really football again for the next <laughs> 10 minutes? Or can we just sort of move on because I'm busy? Yeah. <laughs> but, but do you see, a, what's the difference for the company? Do you see different results if there is 25% women compared to 5-10%? Or? Well, it's not just about women, right? No. I, think, I, I think in any environment or any meeting where you have a, a mixture, and I, I suppose to use an example, mm -hmm. it, it, in my team now, I have a team of direct reports, there are seven of us, a mixture of different gender, different race, different types of people, so yeah. some extroverts, some introverts, whole variety of people. 
and um, and it's a great dynamic mm -hmm. right? because you don't have groupthink, you don't have everyone being the same, and with that you get different ideas. And, and sometimes I'll feel quite challenged. So, so one of my guys will say, oh, I think, well, that's not what I think, or that's not how I think. Yeah. But that's good, right? That, that's, that's what forces you to start thinking about things in a less polarized way. Yeah. And if you have a room full of people or where there's a majority of people who are the same type, I think you get that group thing and you get, start to get those polarized views and you start to believe your own worldview. Yeah. So, so I think having Having that diversity across all the spectrum in the room means you get the broadest possible worldview inputting to your strategy or problem solving, and that's inevitably going to give you great results. Yeah. Right? It's going to give you a, a better result than, than a really homogenized, polarized view. Um, I can imagine that the demands from, let's say, the business sides of, of, of the company are huge. On, on you. So how do you how do you manage that? Do you have how do you work with how you organize the, the, the supply and demand in, in, in IT here? So when I arrived, um, we had a program of work, which is essentially the sort of book of work. Every uh -huh. year comes out of the budget, and um, we would then try and deliver everything on the list. Um, and I think there there was a degree of of control around it, but but not sufficient that we could manage it in a really tight way around budget, resources, concurrency and all of those sort of, like when I we were talking earlier about it's quite a creative company, these yep. sorts of, those sorts of controls that perhaps limit some of that creativity once you're into this delivery mode, some of those were missing. So I've introduced a PMO, um, so I have a, we, we have an annual planning cycle, we have a change process where at least if new work comes in, we, we manage that. Um, and there's a, there's a constant dialogue with stakeholders and different business teams about their priorities. Yeah. And it's, it's difficult now, and I suspect it's not just a Channel 4 program, uh, problem, it's an any company problem, yeah. that the volume of demand far outweighs the technology department's ability to execute. Yeah. Um, but equally, trying to prioritize those demands when all of them seem urgent, also quite difficult. Yeah. So we look at what's legal and compliance, where are the regulatory things that we have to do, they're yeah. on the list. What have we got that's in flight and is going to run over year to year, it's on the list. Um, and, and then it becomes, you know, how are different projects necessarily aligned to what the company is trying to achieve strategically, which ones are going to generate the most revenue, which ones are going to improve efficiency by the highest margin, and then we try and uh, sort of lay those out through the year in a, in a way that doesn't put too much concurrency on the teams. So I have teams looking after data, content and scheduling systems, ad sales systems, the all four products, mm -hmm. corporate systems. I want to make sure I haven't forgotten anyone because <laughs> that would be a disaster. Um, and each of those teams have a certain amount of capacity and some of the projects require interdependencies between those teams so they have to be scheduled in, in, in that sort of way and it's the PMO that that sort of builds that roadmap and tries to, to run that. And that's a new function. That is, that it, yeah. it is a new function and, and it started, what the, the, you know, I was a quality manager when I was at Bupa and we had fairly rigorous and robust sort of processes and controls, but this was like 10 years ago when pace was slower. Yeah. You had time to implement, run a project and then sweat an asset that cycle times are 
up to a decade potentially. Yeah. And now your cycle time is you need to select, implement and derive value in maybe three to four years if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. And so bringing all of those processes and controls that we used to have as, as, as a technology PMO and just dropping them into this environment would have yeah. been very limiting, quite disruptive and extremely painful. Mm -hmm. So the approach that we've taken is to take to look at where are the biggest issues. So we had a big issue where we'd have our plan and then more requests would just come in through the year. Yep. And we would try and absorb them, which was meaning our projects would run long, uh, our people were burning out, really high concurrency and, and, and a volume problem. So we just started to look at every change that comes in needs to go through some kind of board where I'll sit and look at, is it incremental? Yep or is it substitutional? So if it's substitutional, what are we going to take out of the plan for that team to allow this work to slot in? If it's incremental, we're going to go back and ask for more money and potentially engage a third party to provide some additional capacity. And so that was just one thin slice. And then a next slice was to put in an ARB, an architecture review board, to review designs. So we had an issue where we might choose something and then the architects would derive a design and then my program teams would deliver something that was an interpretation of the design. And, and that obviously causes problems because you, you don't get to a sort of centralized enterprise construct. Mm -hmm. So now we have an ARB where a design is signed off by the architects and then that is the design that the delivery teams need to implement. So it's thin slices of control. We're currently focused on improving project and program reporting. A lot of the noise, I think, for the teams comes from requests for information. We haven't had standardized reporting historically outside of each business area. So now we're looking at what report would answer the majority of the questions in yep. terms of how long, when's the next milestone, how much budget, those sorts of things. So we're doing, we're doing work on that. And we typically do work that can be kind of boxed in a quarter. And how do you... How do you work together with business? Because in Agile, do you have pe business people in the teams? Or, or, or how much do you um, melt IT and business together? Or how much is it still separate, really separate? It's a, is it more a supplier inside the company? How is, how is that evolving? No, I mean, I think it's, it's not as separate as some places where I've been, mm -hmm. where technology is over here and the business is over there and yeah. never the twain shall meet. Um, I wouldn't say it's fully integrated either. Um, and, it, and it also varies by area. So if I look at ad sales, we've got a number of people who operate in the business who are very close to working with technology. We have yeah. a bespoke system that we provide for them. So by the very nature, that has to be a close relationship. But they also work with third-party suppliers like Freewheel who provide technical services, have a good understanding of technology and agile. And so that working uh, it is very close together. Yeah. We then have um, some where it's, there's a degree of it being more service provision. So in the data team, we have a data team who look after our big data platform and the pipelines that feed our customer insight. Now they work really closely together, but the data scientists and the customer insight team do their work and, and the data team manage and provide and maintain the pipelines. And there's more dialogue when there's change, but in run mode, they're probably not working so closely together. So. Mm -hmm. And how do you see that evolving? Because, I mean, it used to be IT in the seller and business up there and they would speak every three months or so and now we're working already more together. Do you see that it's going to fuse together more and more or what's your view on, on 
That's, it's, it's a tricky one. So I, I think there's, I think full integration, I'm not sure that would work. I, there's, there's enough about technology that is just a language of its own. In the same way that if I had to work all the time with a group of people in marketing, I wouldn't know what they were talking about half the time. Right? They have their own language, they have their own acronyms, there's processes that, that are just intuitive to them that wouldn't know what they were doing. And I think, I think in technology, you know, it's, it's probably even harder to understand. I think one of the issues for technology functions is that business users and business functions are far more tech savvy, right? Because because everything that you use at home is sort of technology. It's, it's moving that way. It's more accessible. And the danger for technology functions is that that perceived knowledge from a business side is like, well, then it, why is why are you making it so hard? We can do this ourselves. We're making this really hard. <laughs> but when you're looking at taking that sort of technology that you might use in your house and making it enterprise secure yeah. and enterprise scalable and resilient enough that it's not going to fall over um, and intuitive enough that people are going yeah. to use it. That, those things are hard things to do. They're expensive, they're time consuming, all of, all of that stuff. Now, so I think there's, you have far more technology aware stakeholders, but not necessarily aware of some of the limitations yeah. and constraints. But you can still manage the shadow IT. It doesn't exist here, I, I imagine. It, it's, it's not terrible. Okay. It, it happens, but it's visible. Yeah. So we're not a big enough company that, that yeah. there's, there's stuff hiding in corners. Yeah. But there's, there, there, are, there is obviously you know, areas where there's frustration or, or a supplier will get to someone and say, oh, look at this, and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to buy that. That's going to be brilliant. So I think there is, you know, there's, there's balancing that. But, um, but also, the, the, there's, I have a program manager working with each of the uh, different business areas, and mm -hmm. I obviously work with uh, heads of department and executives in each of the business areas. And they're pretty, tra they're pretty transparent about what it is they're trying to do or doing. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's more often conversations about how do we most quickly satisfy yeah. this. There's also a lot of things that happen. At some point, they have to hit the tech shop, right? They need to be integrated, or data needs to be provided, or they need to be backed up, or there's some hardware that's required, or the supplier needs something. Yeah. And so it's quite hard when you have such a broad and integrated estate for someone to drop in a piece of tech and for it never to surface. Yeah. So how, in, in general, technology, how is that organized in Channel 4? Because I can imagine you have all the, the broadcasting technology mm -hmm. and you have the traditional IT part. How, do you, how is that organized over here? So I look after um, all the line of business applications, business change, and some of the support for um, the lines of business. And I work with a guy called Orpheus War. He's the CTO. Mm -hmm. um, he and I both report to the COO. He looks after tech strategy, architecture, infrastructure and service operations, yep. and then the broadcast tech the stack, oh, yeah. because it's very specific. Yeah. And, and he's been here for a number of years, and then I've been here for a short time. So actually, I think we complement each other quite well in, yep. in operating the department that way. So I look at, I, I essentially look at change and projects and programs yep. primarily, and then he looks after the run and then the change that's associated with broadcast. Um, although we've done some pretty big change in his side of the shop in the last 12 months, introducing 365 and agile working, new laptops, infrastructure. And of course, we're doing a relocation at the moment. So we're opening hubs in Glasgow and Bristol and a, a, 
a national HQ in Leeds, and they are um, all have to be built, networked, fit out, and again, they're big programs that sit in offside. The PMO, though, looks across the whole okay. of the change portfolio. Mm -hmm. So from a reporting and a process perspective, that's centralized across the lot. So, Charlotte, in total, IT and technology is around 300 people, up and down, internal, external. Yep. How do you manage uh, your teams? And how do you make sure that you uh, uh, attract the right people, retain them, and make them successful? What, what is your secret ingredient in this? Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a question. So, um, so, I have seven direct reports, mm -hmm. and I work very closely with them. They're all different. So I make sure I treat them differently. I think one of the dangers as a manager is that you have your way of managing your team and then you manage them that way and they have to adapt to your style. But actually, I don't think that you get the best out of people that way. So I very much adapt my style to work with each of them based on how they operate. Okay. They all manage big teams as well. Yeah. So, well, big and small teams actually. So there's a, a, a degree to which I hope that then translates and they then manage their teams that mm -hmm. way. I'm not too hierarchical in terms of the way that I operate. I try and share as much information with my teams as possible. Mm -hmm. I think people don't do well in a vacuum. Organizations quite often hold back information and, it, it, and don't necessarily share as much as they can. They sort of share bits and pieces, but not as much as they can. I'm all for trying to keep the teams as informed as possible at all times of the context of the work that they're doing. Because I think if you don't have the context for the work that you're doing, it's very hard to be motivated. You don't know what you're contributing. You sort of get to the point where sort of, why am I coming to work every day? I'm yep. just churning stuff out, but I don't really see how it fits. So, so I try and make sure I communicate as much as possible to my direct reports and create a sort of set an example to them in terms of how they might want to communicate with their teams. So you're very much of the coaching type of manager, is that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they probably accuse me of being a dictator every now and then, but... I, I've, that's, I'd, that's another word for coaching, though. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll have the conversations and, you know, we'll have an, a debate and then in the end I'll be like, it's not a democracy, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get stuff done. Um, but, yeah, I would like to think I'm, I'm approachable and mm -hmm. I'll make myself available. And the fact is I don't have a deep technology kit bag in terms of my background, um, and so... I rely on them being the experts in their domains yeah. and I see my role as creating the environment where they can be successful and to do that they need to feel that they can share with me what they need to whether it's frustration yeah. at, at me or at something else whether it's um, anxiety about something that's keeping them awake at night whether it's needing a pat on the back for having achieved all of those things yeah. um, and if I can keep them motivated and I can keep them feeling like they have my support and they have someone who can provide them with some direction or some mm -hmm. thought-provoking views when they're wrestling with one of their problems. That's my role. Uh, a lot of them have quite deep technical knowledge of the verticals and their applications. Yeah. So to try and impose might be pointless, right? Let's talk a bit about your background, because I, th I thought that was really, really interesting. I mean, you studied environmental science, archaeology, applied marine science, how the hell do you end up in IT if you have that background? And yeah. So what, what, was the, what was the process there? Well, so I was a bit of a disaster at school. I only got Ds in my A-levels. Um, I didn't do well learning in okay. that environment. Um, 
and I tried being a waitress for a year, but I, I figured I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna make my mark that way. So I went to university and I did a year as a teacher trainer, teaching, I uh, was gonna be a, a biology teacher, mm -hmm. but I did my teacher training in a school for like six weeks and thought this is really hard work. I don't, I don't want to do this and I don't really, I don't really get this whole children thing at that stage. So then I moved to a, 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 because I was at university I could see what degree courses were available and I was interested in environmental science mm -hmm. um, and so I chose that as my major and then there was archaeology as a, a potential it was a modular degree and I had to pick another subject, so I picked archaeology and it was fascinating. So I did my degree in environmental science and archaeology and thought I was going to maybe go off and save the world. Or and, and dig up dirt. and Right, all of that stuff. Um, uh, but I was particularly interested in marine science um, and so I went and did an applied marine science degree. Mm -hmm. And it was quite interesting because I've, I didn't do well at all at my GCSE chemistry and then in my master's degree I had to do advanced marine chemistry and I past so it, I think it's an important it was definitely important to me to understand that something that I thought I couldn't do and was was an abject failure at I when it was applied in the context of something I wanted to do that then became something I could So learn. motivation is everything yeah I think so you have to you can do anything if it's going to get you to something that you want to get to so I came out of my master's degree and I was I, I I kind of fancied myself as a bit of a Jacques Cousteau, but he had a what? Huh? Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, ah, yes, but he had family money, right? <laughs> he had family money. I didn't know that. I thought that was a real job, um, and I got a job at IBM as a temp, as a projects assistant, um, because I needed some money to pay off my student loans, and and I, I had some. I just had some really good people that I worked for at IBM, and I, uh, IBM is an interesting company. It's huge breadth of, of different um, business areas and technologies and so I worked in the travel and transport solutions unit so it was airlines and um, we were doing biometrics for immigration um, so it was quite interesting new technology at the time uh, in quite an interesting industry yeah. and 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 it's not dissimilar to science technology right you've, you've got yeah. you've got hypotheses you need to test and you've got problems you need to solve and I, I guess I just found uh, in that role, I was really good at just getting things done and working with lots of people. So I had a, a job in my first two years at IBM where I was facilitating um, a pilot uh, for an automated immigration system in Bermuda. That was where the pilot was. And we, we arrived, the guy from the US, the sales guy, and myself and the project manager from the UK in Bermuda to do this big launch. Mm -hmm. And nothing was ready. And then the guy, uh, I said to the, the global solutions guy I can I can fix this by Friday just let me get on and organize and I organized everything and I said right well for the next 18 months you need to be here um, one week out of every two in order to sort of liaise between the Bermuda Immigration Authority and the government and the tech team in the UK and the sales team well, in the US cool, and it was a cool job and and I, that's when I kind of realized maybe my job is getting on with people and organizing things um, and, and, and controlling the activities and making yeah. sure that everything's sort of moving. And being willing to take a, a lead, I suppose, and, and put yourself out there as a person who's going to be responsible mm -hmm. for getting it. That, that's, I think, what I bring to the table. So what is your secret in getting things done then? What, is, what are the, your principles to make sure that things... I don't, I don't like failure. 
<laughs> Failure is not so, enough. No, I liked, I, you know, that I had two brothers. I'm quite competitive. Uh -huh. So I think there is a degree of, as soon as someone says, oh, no, we, that can't be done. That's like, a, that's like an invitation. Okay. It's like, oh, you know, that can't possibly be done. It's like, right, let's have a look at what can't be done. That sounds like something that's quite interesting. So there's definitely it's something inherent about me that is I like to be able to prove that you can't that that things that people say can't be done can and then technology is a great environment right it it definitely is i think the the other thing is that you know everybody no one likes to fail right um, everybody wants to succeed but you've got to be brave enough to be prepared to fail mm -hmm. in order to in order to really sort of get things done. Mm -hmm. And I've learned over time to, to cope with failure. So what was your most brilliant failure that you ever did? <laughs> most brilliant failure. And um, what did you learn from it? Of course, that's, that's what it is. Well, I, I'll be non-specific because I wouldn't want to attribute it to a particular organization, but in a, in a reasonably senior leadership position, I've had, I had to go basically pick up a portfolio um, and look at a project that um, had been going wrong for some for some time, yeah. and be very clear with the board. And this was fairly early in my tenure at the company that the um, that the program was not going to be successful. It wasn't my first role at the company; it was in my second role at the company. But it, it was it was so I'd seen it going wrong from another area, and then I. I, I I, I then took on responsibility for that area, and it was definitely going wrong. And so, and the sleepless nights in terms of gradually acquiring the information that was informing me that this thing wasn't going to be a success and actually mm -hmm. was going to be result in a substantial write-off. That was that was tough. That was tough when, it, but it wasn't my. It was not your failure. It wasn't my failure, but it, that was that was one of the hardest lessons in. You're still the person who's going to have to front up and tell the story. Um, I think in terms of, gosh, I'm trying to think. There's there's a number, right? There's a number. You know, you have projects where they haven't delivered, mm -hmm. and you have to go back and look at every action that you took and every decision that you made, and ask yourself, was I listening enough? Um, and often that's the problem. There are voices te that, that are telling you, but they're perhaps not loud enough. Or was I not paying enough attention? Did I not scrutinize the information? I mean, we were talking briefly earlier about the having to operate without having all the detail. Yep. As you start having to operate in a leadership position and you don't have, you have a breadth of responsibility that means you can't be over everything. Yep. Let's, talk, let's talk about that because that's interesting. Let's, um, in your career, you've taken on more and more responsibility. And, uh, and we'll talk about your personality in a moment, but you tend to like having control and knowing all the deals, uh, details and so on. But if you, if you um, take more and more responsibility, more and more bigger teams, you can't always have all the details. So how do you manage that? With, as a person who likes to, by default, control all the details, let go of that and, and, and manage teams in uh, and not projects? I think you have to learn it. Mm -hmm. And you can only learn it by doing it. Mm -hmm. So when I was um, when I was at Specsavers, I was head of business systems for retail. I was delivering a big retail program, and then I got promoted to the supply chain IT director role. 
And I remember three months in, I spoke to the IT director of retail, who'd previously been my boss, and I was like, Carl, seriously, it's so lonely. <laughs> you didn't tell me. It's going to get better, right? And he said, no, no, you'll just get used to it. And, <laughs> and he was right. But you, you do... You get to the point where, for me, I tried, right? So at first I tried, I'd be up all night reading all the emails, scrutinizing all the project reports, looking at all the figures, and then trying to process that. And I'd have lists and notes to try and organize my thoughts so that if I was in a meeting, I'd have a frame of reference for the things I might be asked or I'd need to know. And within three months, it's just not sustainable. Yeah, it's, it's not sustainable. impossible to keep up. So. But, but in those three months, I went to enough board meetings that I'd hear the questions and I'd start to understand what's the information I really need to know. And I think the interesting thing is you get further and further up an organization and you're sitting in forums, you start to realize that all of the people sitting around the table are having to take decisions and make decisions based on a level of information that is way less than you thought. Yeah. So when you're further down an organization and you're looking up, you're thinking, God, these people, they must know everything, right? They must be so smart. They know everything. Um, they've got all the facts. You know, I'm never going to be smart enough to do that. And then you sit and you realize that actually, no, these people have just got comfortable leading and managing and making decisions with less information than they might like to have. Mm -hmm. But they've they've identified what are the critical pieces of information that they need. And what are these? What I, is it that you need to know to make a, a decision without knowing all the details? In my role, it, I, I need to, a lot of it's about delivery, a lot of the questions about when, mm -hmm. how much, how likely is this to fail? If it fails, what are the contingency plans? What are the biggest risks? And I think, and, and there's a threshold then for the types of programs that you need to know that. So anything under 100K, my program managers can keep an eye on that, right? Anything under half a million to a million, I want to know when it's going to deliver. If that's going to change, I need to know that. I'd, and, and I kind of have to get a gut sense of yeah. how likely is that. I need to know how much is it going to cost broadly. I, I need to sort of, uh, so anything, over, anything over a million upwards, you probably need to at least on a weekly basis be reading the project report and looking for any yep. smoking red flags. And, and it's experience over time that allows you to sort of read between the lines of all of the words because, of course, your programmers put all of the words in and you have to sort of pick out where are those red flags. And only experience really gets you yep. to that. But I can imagine it has a lot to do with working with teams and with people and, and, and knowing uh, when to trust them and when not to trust them and, and so how, how, how did you experience that? How did you grow up in, in, in that? I think the you have to put the people around you mm -hmm. well you don't actually oh, that's not true you don't always have the luxury of having all the people around you that you might choose yeah right? so you you really have to get to know your team and understand their strengths and weaknesses so if I look at my team, they all have different, they're very different people, right? They have very yeah. different strengths and weaknesses. So there may be one where if he tells me the dates, I know his planning is on point yeah. all the time. And so I'll be really confident in his, in what he might tell me. Yeah. And I might have another employee or direct report who, who give me a plan and I know their planning isn't necessarily. Yeah. So I might ask a few more questions. And you, you put in some contingency. Might, yeah, yeah, I might be a little bit less bold yeah. about how I position those dates. I think it is about 
It's definitely about understanding what you're getting from people, but then also understanding who you're presenting to and what they need to know. Mm -hmm. So you're always, you always assume that they want to know more than they actually yeah. do until you get to a certain point where you realize, no, what they really want is the reassurance that you're over your patch. But what the majority of boards and executives are looking for are for you to tell them if there's anything they need to be worrying about and they need to try, uh, you know, they need to be able to trust that. And so there's building that relationship where they're looking to you and you're sharing the information and they feel confident you're sharing what they need to know to be able to make their decisions, which are again at, an, at a different level. Okay, interesting to see how, how, um, uh, how you evolve as a leader, right? And, and how you go from uh, needing to know all the details into trusting people and, and knowing which critical questions to, to ask and depending on the level of project, what to follow up and uh, or not very... Well, for me as well, I love the scale and complexity part. Mm -hmm. So the thing that offsets, you know, I can, I can either and my, you know, my, my, for my master's degree, I wrote a paper about, eco, it was an ecotoxicology, about a very specific impact of a single chemical on a population of a particular kind of mollusk, right? Very specific. Mm -hmm. And I can get very immersed in that type of detailed study. And, yeah. But then I can also get excited about having multiple different things all happening concurrently that give you that sort of breadth of interest. And I don't think there's much in my job now that allows me to be in that sort of mode of really scrutinizing a single kind of topic or area. Uh, so I've, I've lent towards in my career, certainly that other part of my preference, if you like, which is to have that breadth of scale and complexity that means there's lots of different interests. So my day, my day when I'm at home, if I work from home, mm -hmm. I will try and do two things so that I can get total immersion in two important things, what I call hard thinking work. So I'll do two pieces of hard thinking work if I can. When I'm in the office, I'll be in like eight different meetings and they'll be on different topics all the way through the day. And so you work at home for your hard thinking work? Yeah. Uh, give me an example, what is, what, what is that? So how, how if I, so recently I've had a program that's not going brilliantly and I needed to go back and scrutinize a load of reports and look at all the various emails and the hard thinking work. Or um, when we're evaluating different uh, proposals and you need to really read through the RFPs and get into the responses and get into the detail of understanding hard thinking work. You know, if you're distracted, you can lose half an hour getting back into it. It's that sort of work. And for that, you need to be on your own? Yeah, I mean, we have an open plan office. Even if I'm eating at my desk, people are like, oh, she said her desk, I've got a question I'm going to pop over. Okay. So I, if, if I want to be uninterrupted and I want to focus and be as productive as I can be, I don't necessarily have to be at home. It could be anywhere as long as I'm not sat at my desk. Okay. Um, but when I'm, then when I'm in the office, because there are people around and it's distracting, I don't do great hard thinking work in the office, but I engage with my team and then I have yeah. lots of different topic meetings. So you like to work with people. Yeah. You like to get things done. You like to be challenged by complexity. Yep. Uh, you take time alone to do the hard thinking work. Uh, it's, picture is getting clearer and clearer. Let's talk about your personality. You know, in, in these conversations, we use as a, as a common thread the MBTI profile. Yes. And you shared us that your profile is INFJ. Right. Uh, and then uh, INFJ, I'm going to read the summary of this. Uh, personality type is very rare. Uh, and they make up less than 1% of the population. But nonetheless, they leave their mark on the world. 
um, advocates, as they are called, they have an inborn sense of idealism and morality. And what sets them apart is that they are not idle dreamers. These individuals are capable of taking concrete steps to realize their goals and making a lasting positive impact. How does that resonate? Which sounds okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, it, it does resonate with me. I definitely have, um, you know, I have a strong sense of what's right and wrong mm -hmm. um, in my mind yeah. and a fairness. Um, I, do, I think I've, I remember saying numerous times when I was growing up to my mum, it's not fair, you know, with my brothers. And she would say, well, the world's not meant to be fair. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it plays into, I definitely like to have a goal and then, and I set myself goals yep. and then work towards them in a, in a sort of fairly rational way. I'm definitely, I was interested that I, I, I was sure, I was pretty sure I would come out as an introvert. I, I was interested that I did because often people think I'm an extrovert mm -hmm. but actually I do like I, I need the time alone mm -hmm. um, and I need that the time by myself to really reflect on on things and also if I've had a busy day I just you know some people thrive from then having the energy of being around other people and I just need you don't go to, to the pub at the end of a hard working day no, no. only if there's like team drinks and yeah. I and then you know it, it's it's important to be but there you need enough time on yourself to yeah traveling for business is a you know you you meetings meetings dinners lunches meetings you know, that That's I'm like curse. back to the hotel for the first you okay. know some yeah. tv yeah. and a burger on a tray okay <laughs> um but yeah, I don't, I, d I don't think I'm too much of an idealist because I would have described myself as a pragmatist in terms of being able to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, I was reading a book recently by uh, Shackleton about his, um, his, what do you call it, expedition and, and where it all went so horribly wrong. And, and one of the quotes... And Shackleton was? I don't, I don't it, know. It, Ernest Shackleton, the explorer, who um, he went on the endurance and got trapped and then had to go overland to save himself and his crew and all this stuff. He said, no great things are achieved by being realistic. And that's quite <laughs> interesting for me because I think it's true. You know, you're never going to achieve anything truly great if you focus on what's realistic. But equally, I have to deliver loads of projects and I like my team to be realistic about what can be achieved. So it's an interesting thing for me that's like this ambition that says I want to achieve great things. No. But also I'm a pragmatist who immediately looks at, okay, how can that be done in a realistic way? No. Okay, some of the strengths and then you pick out a word that uh, fits uh, you best. Strengths of uh, INFGs is creative, insightful, inspiring, convincing, decisive. Determined, uh, determined, passionate, and altruistic. So, which ones pop out most? Determined. Way? Determined. I, I think if you, I think you have to, you have to take responsibility for your life and your mm -hmm. work and what you want to achieve, and then you have to be determined enough that you're going to get there because nothing comes for free. Um, I'd like to think inspiring. I, th I, I think I've been effective in managing my teams and mm -hmm. and leading in a way which inspires people to to follow yeah. and work with so so i think they probably pop out the most the uh, areas of uh, attention growth potential <laughs> growth potential areas right. are with with people with these uh, personality type is um, they can be very sensitive 
uh, sometimes uh, extremely private perfectionist. Uh, they always have to, uh, need to have a cause and they sometimes can burn out easily. What are the challenges that you pay attention most to? So I've had to learn uh, to get a thick skin. I would yeah. definitely say I'm sensitive. I'm sensitive to criticism and I'm sensitive to failure and I'm sensitive. So I've had to develop a sort of, yeah, a thick skin in order to, to feel. So failure hurts for you? Yeah. Yeah, probably more than for most. Yeah. And I don't think it's because I'm a perfectionist. I think it's because I'm competitive and I like to win and I, and I like to deliver what I say I'm going to deliver. So if I see that going wrong, I ask myself some pretty searching questions. Mm -hmm. So I would say sensitive. What else is on that list? Extremely private. Need, needs, uh, always needs uh, to have a cause. Can burn out easily. Mm. Mm. Not too much. Not so much. I mean, I, I am quite private. I don't like to mix my sort of personal and professional. I, I find, you know, work functions bring your spouse not so easy. I, do, it's, it's, mm -hmm. I just think there's, you know, you, you have a mode that you operate in at work. And then at home, I'm so, a wife and a mother. And I'm, you know, in fact, I've, I'm Charlotte Light at work. That's my maiden name. My, my married name is Charlotte Perryman. So I almost have these two. So you have two person. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Two sets of clothes. Different, well, it's a different life, isn't it? Uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a different life being That's a wife and mother to being a CIO. So, so you have a son of 10, you told me, and a husband. Yes. So what are the values that you want to give your son? What is, when will you be content when you see your son grow up? Um, I, I want him to be happy, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I want him to know that to be happy, he's probably going to have to work hard. Okay. So, you know... I, People sort of say you need to find the thing that you love and then you won't work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's true for the lucky people who find the thing they absolutely love doing and manage to convert it into an income that supports the lifestyle they want to have. I think for everyone else, it's a case of figuring out what can you work hard at that you're good at mm -hmm. that's going to you know, pay the mortgage and, and, and allow you to sort of um, feel like you're contributing and feel like you're... Um, achieving and feel that you're fulfilled yeah. um, and so I, I, I think for him you know obviously I want happiness um, but I think that comes in lots of different forms and part of that is is through figuring out um, you know what it is to work hard and achieve and feel that satisfaction that comes with achieving mm -hmm. great things and that great things can be quite small things um, I think sometimes there's this sort of Mis misconception uh, that to achieve something great you have yep. to be like um, Elon Musk or <laughs> Bill Gates or... Well he does pretty fancy things I mean, They do do pretty fancy things but there are great things you can do on quite yep. a small scale every But then day. Steve Jobs wasn't happy on his deadbed and right. he said... I've, there you go, there you I've, go. I could you have see. done many uh, more beautiful things than just build a, 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 a big money-making machine as a company. So I think that's... it's it's understanding that that to, to be great and to have that sense of fulfillment, of mm -hmm. contributing, yeah. can come in lots of different forms. So family is important for you then? Yeah, right? very important. Yeah. Okay. Personal mantra. Do you have any and how do you live by them? Um, I, I have a number of things that would, would fall into a sort of mantra category. Um, I, I guess the, I have a thing about, and this is just reflecting that you, that Everything that you learn that's really important, you learn when you fail. Mm -hmm. There are very few things that you learn from being 
from the things that are just successful or that come easily. Um, I, I'm also quite uh, particular about um, making sure people are treated. Like if, I, I will never tr speak to someone in a way that I would feel uncomfortable if someone spoke to me that way. So there's a sort of degree of about how you communicate with people. Um, and then the, the third is I spent quite a lot of my early career being quite scared of a lot of things. And then I would put, I, I wouldn't put myself out there necessarily. And, and I think you reach a tipping point where you have to decide to sort of feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, there's that sort of, if, if you're afraid, you just need to go for it. Um, and and what, what was your tipping point? Was there I was taking the director job. That was, career-wise, that was a definite uh, tipping point. Because up until that point, there'd always been someone else who was ultimately on the hook. And therefore, the failures would not necessarily... I wouldn't have to be the face of this yeah. project failing or going over budget or not achieving something. I'd be contributing to it, maybe, but it wouldn't necessarily be mine to own. And I think that... Take, when you, once you get to a certain threshold of leadership, you have to own. You're responsible. You're, you're and that was hook. very frightening and scary in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, it was terrifying. But now it's it's fulfilling. Yeah, now it, it, it's become the thing that that I find motivating, and and that doesn't mean I don't still have have periods where everything doesn't seem to be going brilliantly, and I know I'm going to have to deal with some difficult conversations and some yeah. fallout from that, and that's that's hard. It's because of my sort of high sensitivity to criticism or failure. I'd be there thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to deal with this. But that's part of my job, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of my job is to, is to own the outcomes, and that means when there are good outcomes, I get to own those, and I get to share that with my team. And, and then when when there are bad outcomes, then I try and shoulder those and not share that so much with my team <laughs> because because you want your team to be motivated. And typically when things go wrong, they don't go wrong because of any single individual or any single action. It's some cumulative set of parameters that just mean you haven't completely crafted the environment for success. So your professional happiness is when you can have success and deliver together with the team. Is that, yeah. is that a good Yeah, summary? yeah, I think so. Well, you don't get, there's not much fun celebrating by yourself, is no. there? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we achieved this great result. I'm going to go and celebrate alone. Yeah, <laughs> have a hamburger. <laughs> exactly. Okay. You are active in the advisory board of the Institute of Coding. Yes. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so the Institute of Coding is a, it's an initiative that's funded by the government mm -hmm. to look at, um, how tertiary education in the UK can be better adapted to deliver digital skills mm -hmm. into industry. And it's constructed in such a way that there's a, a board that are looking at how to spend the money on developing courses and uh, <coughs> content and, and uh, tertiary education that's going to fulfill that brief. But there's also then an industry advisory board made up of a number of people who work in industry. So people from Google and Amazon, from BP, yep. a range of different companies, myself included, who are there to provide the industry perspective in terms of what we're looking for. Yep. And one of the, uh, it's, a, it's a, uh, we sort of review the, the programs that are being put in place to address the skills gap. Um, but one of the interesting things that comes out of those sessions is the dialogue around what is it that industry is looking for. And one of the consistent themes, which is really interesting to me, uh, because the conversation starts off like, do we need to do more big data training? Or do we need to have a security degree? Of, or do we need to do specific types of tech degree courses? And one of the consistent messages from industry is that 
what they're looking for are people with the softer skills around working practice. Yep. So it's not so much around have you got a big data degree, it's about do you know how to show up to work on time every day <laughs> and act like a good corporate citizen in the office. You know, it's, it's, so it was more around, around that is from an industry perspective one of the big skills gaps that, that's, that can be missing from people who are coming out of university. There is also a lot of discussion around you know, a three-year degree in a topic in tech, you're going to be obsolete. Your year one, your year one is likely to be obsolete by year three and by the time you sort of get mm -hmm. into industry. So there's uh, some discussion about how do you do more around uh, combined courses where you have classroom-based education, but the, then you have more substantial placements. Yep. Um, and my degree was obviously a long time ago, but typically there'd be a sort of six-month industrial placement in year three prior to you completing your degree. And I think now what's being um, you know, advocated by the industry advisory board is more, well, why wouldn't you have some more frequent interaction between individuals and industry? And I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge because, you know, I, I think there are, I'm as likely to hire someone as a developer straight from school if they've got the necessary skills and attributes to be a great developer than from university because if someone's already decided they want to develop code the best place for them to learn how to do that is by sitting in a project team working in a company and and doing various skill courses that are provided by industry rather than necessarily having a degree and i think that's going to be that's going to shift you know the, the 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 dial in terms of putting people earlier into work, but allowing them to learn on the job. So I I think there's it's an interesting forum to sit on because there are some it, there's supplier side and client side companies who are offering opinions, but actually the opinions are, are very much sort of aligned um, in terms of what companies are struggling to find from graduates. So how easy is it for you to attract top talent here in Channel 4? It's an, it's, we're lucky, right? We have a great profile, we're an amazing brand, and we're a TV company. Yeah. So I think we, we, can, we can attract a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, what that then presents is a diff, different challenge to most companies of working through and identifying who are the people with the right skills mm -hmm. and who will have the best fit. And what are, what are the, the, the specific profiles that are more difficult to find? Or is every? Engineers, In always general. difficult. Well, yeah. broadcast engineers, oh, yeah. I mean, it's on off side of the shop, but I know, he, it, you know, it's a, it's a specific skill. And it's certainly a diffi diffi difficult skill to find any diverse so candidates. Satellite for. engineers. Female satellite <laughs> engineers, that would be, that would be someone to find. Okay, really. um, architects yeah. also can yeah. be quite challenging. There are certain skills that are, are hard to find in the market generally. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. I mean, with a good brand, it's easier. And with a funky environment, it's easier to attract good people. So that's uh, Yeah, and, that's and cool. we, don't have, uh, we don't have much of an issue around retention. So okay. people who come here tend to stay here. And, uh, and if, if, if anything, one of the challenges we have is that because it's a great place to work and people love working here, offering that progression especially as people progress to more senior levels, yep. there, aren't, there aren't the roles to move them to. So you have to look at different ways to motivate and develop staff. Yep. So I can imagine that you, for uh, some of the people in your team, are a, are a mentor and you coach them and to, be, to become better professionals. 
When you look back on your own career, um, who were, were important mentors for you and, and what did you learn from them? So um, I worked at, I worked at Specsavers uh, and previously at Booper for a guy called John Lister. Mm -hmm. He was the CIO at both of those organizations when I worked there. And he was a big advocate to me. We're having lunch on Wednesday, actually, <laughs> uh, and he still is. Um, he's a very um, down-to-earth guy, but he's always provided me with sort of fairly sage counsel, um, good feedback, and, um, and offered me opportunities, uh, I think, on the basis of um, the work that we've done together. So he's, he's definitely someone who earlier in my career was sort of inspiring as someone to aspire to be and to look at and say, well, what would it take for me to be doing his job? And what did you specifically learn from him? Um, I think some of the, a number of things, that, that the piece about figuring out what are the right things to focus on mm -hmm. and, and allowing that to be enough. Uh, certainly about taking decisions in a timely way even when you feel perhaps that you don't know enough because you get to the point of understanding that a decision, a, any decision is better than no decision. Definitely about being sort of determined and taking the rough with the smooth. I mean, I watched him take some fairly big hits when he was a CIO in terms of things that weren't going brilliantly and just mm -hmm. observing how he handled those situations in a sort of calm and measured and professional way. You know, he's had a number of sort of personal challenges to overcome that make him particularly inspiring as an individual. Yeah, so, so just in terms of someone who seems to manage to remain calm and good-humoured even in the face of having difficult conversations. Okay. From, from that level, just down to small things like uh, I presented to the board fairly early on in my tenure working at, at Booper and it was my first board presentation, I was very nervous. And when I came out, he said, your content was brilliant, but you said, you know, at the end of too many sentences. You should... You should just observe that. And it's just those little things of having someone tell you the things that you wouldn't notice yeah. yourself to prevent you doing it over and over again and allowing you to sort of be a bit more credible in what you're doing. In preparing this conversation, you told me that you've been lucky in your life. Yes. And what do you mean by that? I think I have a, I have a loving, stable uh, family. Mm -hmm. So um, I... You know, my parents are, are together and, um, and healthy. I have brothers and, and they have wives and children who are um, happy and healthy. I've had a good career so far. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in my mid to late 40s and I've been able to progress through mm -hmm. a number of organizations and have different roles open up to me that have given me the opportunity to grow. Um, I, I have a, a, a good marriage and a, a beautiful child and a, a, a good life at a time when you know you look around the world and what's happening and there are lots of people far less fortunate. Yep. So I feel like I, you know, I, I can't be unhappy w with the lot that I have and the cause that I've been dealt. And, and I think that's, that's a fortunate position to be in. These conversations are being watched by current CIOs, but also future CIOs and digital leaders. Um, with your background and experience, what would your advice be to younger uh, people that say, well, I want to be the CIO of Channel 4, BBC, uh, or 
another media company or a high profile company later, what would your advice be to them? All right. I mean, I think there is, you, you have to have a plan mm -hmm. a little bit that you don't need to know exactly how the plan's going to work, yeah. but you need to have a plan that sort of sets yourself some targets of where do I want to be when I'm 35? Where do I want to be by 40? Sort of five, I had five-year milestones. Okay. I wanted to be an IT director by the time I was 40, and I wanted to be a CIO by the time I was 45. And I think just setting, uh, setting some parameters and then thinking, well, what would, what would need to be true for, for, for me to achieve that? Well, I'd need the right sponsorship. I need yeah. to have done the right sort of roles. Uh, it's not necessarily about training. It's about experience. Um, I would definitely, there were chances that had I known what I know now, I would have taken sooner. sooner. So I think, you know, the, the thing we talked about where you have this assumption that people who are in senior positions just, they're there because they know everything. Yeah, that's not true. No. You know, they're there because they know enough and they have enough experience to draw on that they can confidently make decisions. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. You have to, there are some people who are fortunate to gain enough experience in a short amount of time that they can make those leaps sooner. But there's definitely no substitute for having... The ambition and a plan. Yeah, ambition and a plan and, 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 and then learning. So what's the plan for, um, for the next five years then? I still have a number of things that I would like to achieve while yeah. I'm here. Um, and there's sufficient change and um, disruption in the industry that actually media is quite a fun place to be right now. Yeah. So I think that that presents me a longer time horizon here than you might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. I used to think as well that an industry shift, and, and it used to be true actually in tech, that you'd need to shift industries in order to sort of shake things up a bit. So the, the, the way technical delivery worked, the way the, the lack of um, breadth of options in technology meant that if you went from one company to another in the same industry, you'd basically be dealing with the same things. Yeah, if, if you go from a bank to a bank to a bank. It's yeah, and, and, and so I deliberately moved from, to different industries in my career in order to take what I'd learned and then apply it in a new industry context and learn new information. Yeah. I think the thing that's different now is that this, the spectrum of technology that's available to any given company and this the volume of industry-specific technology is such that actually Switching that's harder to do harder. now, yeah. right? It's going to take. It's taken me a good 12 to 18 months to get gend up on the technology that's specific to media, and I would say I'm still learning every day. Yeah. I mean, 18 months at a previous company, I'd have been all over it, and and it's because the the complexity is higher, the the degree to which technology influences the way the business operates has expanded. The demand for technology within the business and across the industry is, is expanding. And the, the options are proliferating like wildfires. So, so there is a, a degree to which my mode of working may need to, I mean, I may need to take a view on, do I stay in or proximal to this industry? Um, and do I stay here and, and see out the sort of disruption that's going to come from the do you see yourself functioning in an, in an IT function or in an IT role yeah, I, or not, not anymore in a business I love role? It. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a technologist, but I love working in technology <coughs> and I'm good at it. And yeah. I think if you find something that you enjoy and that you're good at, yeah. you know, why? If you why? enjoy it, 
a good and a, and a pace, then that's what you need to do. <laughs> yeah, and it pays. <laughs> there you go, yeah. So I think the, the problem still exists and is exacerbated by the pace of change. Mm -hmm. That the majority of companies that have any kind of tenure or history have a big legacy estate, yeah. custom applications, big ERP systems, on-premise, chunks of old infrastructure. And the appetite for change coming from the business is, is so big and can be met using services, cloud services, uh, small applications, um, you know, niche solutions, can be integrated in, a, in an easier way um, at the front end, but then you still have this great big chunk of, of big applications, databases and machines at the back end. And the budget required for those is almost higher than the budget for the stuff at the front end. So trying to convince you know, chief executives and executive committees to spend sufficiently on either managing and maintaining that legacy estate as you gradually move the function onto new technology or actively investing in shifting that dial or recognizing you have to mothball something and just hope it never falls over those those conversations are difficult they're getting harder and harder to have because because the, that that appetite for change at the front end is so it's so aggressive and and the competitive demands certainly in our industry make that even more pressing so there's a big it debt there's, there's a huge, is, is yeah, the, yeah, there's the a huge, word, so. there is a huge IT debt and typically it costs more and takes longer to deal with the boring stuff at the back yeah. than the exciting stuff at the front. And, and what's the magic solution to fix this? I think, I think in every year you have to plan, you have to, you have to plan to gradually decommission and migrate. You also have to look at some things and say, you know what, that's part of our estate that we're going to have to look after. We're going to have to manage it and maintain it. Uh, I know a lot of banks have done that with a lot of their really old complex systems. They, they, they look at how to just manage and maintain that while gradually moving the functions out of, out of the box and into, into other ways. But it is about making sure that you, you, you can articulate clearly the benefit of doing that. Because it's always easy to spin the benefits case around the, the whizzy stuff that you want to do that's new, but spinning up a, a proper benefits case for what you need to invest in your legacy legacy estate. I think that's one of the things that it's, it's a core part of the job, right? But not the most fun part. It's not the most fun part. <laughs> <laughs> There's very little glory there. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's important to keep everything safe. No, absolutely. So uh, Charlotte, um, uh, thank you very much for this conversation. I thought that was uh, really, really interesting. So thank you for sharing your, your insights, your views, and, and, and talking about yourself and your team here. So Pleasure. Thank Thanks. Thank you.